Part One, Chapter Two of Better Angel by Richard Meeker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Better Angel by Richard Meeker, Part One, Chapter Two. And so Kurt Gray reached the age of thirteen, one of the most difficult of his life, in a state of unusual loneliness unusual seriousness and unusual innocence the seriousness and the loneliness were the natural results of his own peculiar temperament the innocence was the natural result of the other two in combination he had wondered about life as all boys do but being cut off to such an extent from other boys by temperamental barriers not to be surmounted his wonderings went for the most part unanswered babies where did they come from anyway they were deposited in houses in some supernatural way, to be sure. But the whole problem was tantalizing. Girls, what were they like? Boys. His own body was a queer thing. He had discovered when he was very young and very full of uncertainty that there was a strange intoxicating pleasure to be won from his body. Alone. It was a simple animal joy, probably wrong, but unutterably enticing. It was so wonderful, so lullingly pleasant to lie in the warm bath-water, with the house sounds muffled and far away, and to yield to this newly discovered, this wantonly exotic ravishment of the senses. It was a warm, indolent delight that seemed to flood his body with a curious and subtle languor, which increased and lulled, and increased, singing in all his veins, until pleasure became almost pain unbearably sweet and then, suddenly, it would end, leaving him incredibly tired and listless. He felt, though he had never been told, that what he did was wrong. It couldn't be right, such perfection of pleasure, and he never let himself succumb too frequently. The reaction was too enervating, too frightening. He was somewhat reassured when he learned that other boys knew the same delight. There had been a boy, Barry Van Cleet, two years younger than himself, who sometimes came over to join the players in the Bronson barn. Kurt liked him, and between them, for a while, a queer clandestine friendship sprang up. They had gone one afternoon on their bicycles out the main road leading through the town into the country. After some two miles of pedaling, they turned off into an inviting by-road, sandy and deserted, hid their bikes behind a straggling rail fence where a great billowing elderberry bush quite concealed them, and walked down a narrow grass-choked lane to a cemetery on the river bank, a cemetery long disused. Here and there, out of the tangle of glossy green myrtle and wild verbena, rose staggering white stones, weathered and stark, their inscriptions almost effaced. And beside one of them, Kurt added to his store of knowledge, it began by dares, both eager, both hesitant. It ended in both of them, trembling with excitement, slipping with furtive bravado out of their clothes. They stood there in the warm sunshine, like two green figurines come suddenly to life in a place of forgetfulness and silence. There was animal joy then, sheer pleasure in the joy of nakedness, of the touch of flesh, of sun and wind on uncovered bodies. The sudden clatter of a cultivator in a nearby field, and the shout of the farmer as he turned his horses at the end of the furrow, sent them scuttling back into their clothes, 
a little fearful, a little ashamed, and back to their bicycles. There had been other experiences, two or three. Barry had moved away to Chicago soon after this, but Kurt had seen enough to know that boy bodies were patterned like his own. Girls were more difficult. He had asked his parents one evening when they were looking at the paper after supper was over. The question had come, it seemed to them, apropos of nothing. I don't believe girls are any different from boys, he said seriously, only for their clothes. His father and mother had looked at one another and laughed. He had been ashamed, so ashamed that he determined never to ask again anything. They were different, then. Their laughter had given them away. He wondered about it, and tried to find out from the smaller boys he played with, those who had sisters. He even offered little Jane Dameron, whom he liked, a dime if she would. But she had been unaccountably angry and had run home, leaving him in terror lest she might tell what he had done. Later he had been ashamed, for a similar thing had happened to him, and he had not liked it. One sultry July night, he and Nob and a half-dozen smaller children had congregated on Nob's front porch to examine the most recent product of his ingenuity, a long-handled butterfly net. They had gone forth in a straggling, leaping band to the corner, and spent many frantic and noisy minutes in a vain endeavor to snare a bat that was swerving erratically about the streetlight, sliding swiftly into the dark, and then as swiftly dipping back into the central pool of light, but always just evading the net. They had grown tired at last, and while they were lying on the cool grass in the gloom cast by the maple tree on the corner, wondering volubly about bats and stars and june bugs and moths and the click and flicker of the carbon lamp, Beanie Gorton had appeared and begun organizing a game of hide-and-seek. Bounds were to be half the block, and Beanie magnanimously offered to be it. He was not much bigger than Kurt, and in the same grade at school although he was two years older. He had narrow blue eyes, and his hair, which was light, was clipped close to his head. Large ears protruded from a rather small head, which melted into his blue jersey by way of a soft-looking chin indented by a deep dimple. He was to count to a thousand by tens. He planted himself against the tree trunk and began counting. There were scamperings and whispered warnings, and in a moment Beanie was alone in the shadow of the great tree. Kurt had run between his house and Bronson's, scuttled around the paling fence that separated the backyards from the gardens, run silently along the side of the barn, and seeing the door to Nob's workshop invitingly ajar, slipped inside. Clinging to the door casing, he listened to the faint eight hundred, nine hundred, one thousand, comin' from the corner. Then the padding of rapid feet, a shriek, and Beanie's voice. One, two, three for Isbel! Another silence, a mysterious rustle of leaves. Isbel's shrill voice calling, Cucumber! Cucumber! Another tattoo of swift feet, and a boy's cry of, Free! A moment later, there was another, and then a third, knobs. That meant that Beanie was far from goal. A scraping sound by the side of the barn sent Kurt shrinking into the darkness. Stealthy footfalls came closer, and suddenly, black against the stars, Beanie's head and shoulders appeared. Kurt crouched, motionless, holding his breath, while the blood in his wrists thumped and pounded. The head turned, 
and a hand came thrusting through the door. When it was just about to touch him, Kurt exploded in a nervous giggle. Beanie sprang inside and seized him. Kurt! It's Kurt! he half shouted, and then, as Kurt struggled to free himself, loosened his hold and whispered, Shh! Let's have some fun. Wait here a while and fool him. Kurt was surprised. Hey, he said, aren't you going to race me to goal? Beanie hesitated. Nah, let them come in free if they want. Let's stay here. The night was soft and warm. Beanie's hands were fumbling with Kurt's clothing. It was strange. He didn't like it, and he twisted himself away. Beanie's voice was wheedling. Oh, come on, let me feel. I won't hurt you any. No, I don't want to. Let me out. And he ducked for the open door. He found himself stopped by Beanie's left arm, braced against the sill, while the right went seeking, fumbling in the darkness. Kurt wrenched himself free and started to cry out, Let me go, I tell you! but was interrupted by another voice at the door. It was Nobbs. Hey, what's biting you, Beanie? Everybody's run in free. You'll have to be it again. And he let forth into the night a long wailing, Alley, alley, outs and free! Guess I better go home, said Beanie sullenly. And as he squeezed against Kurt, in going through the narrow door, he whispered, Don't tell your ma, Kurt. And then a horrible thing occurred. One Saturday afternoon, when the house was dim and quiet, and his mother had gone to town, he had taken advantage of her absence to look in the encyclopedia for things he was continually curious about. He had learned that such things could be found there. The difficulty was that he understood so little of it. It was like a tantalizing game. One word would lead to another, and that to a third, until he would have half a dozen of the heavy volumes piled on the floor around him. It was disturbing and not very satisfactory, wetting his curiosity rather than appeasing it. Then he had turned to the Bible, the large one on the shelf beneath the library table, and read, as he had surreptitiously done before, parts that suggested hidden knowledge. Leviticus, the story of Onan, the affairs of David, of Sodom, of Lot, the Song of Solomon. And the rest was as usual. He found himself drawn willing and yet reluctant, up the stairs to his mother's room, darkened against the afternoon sun. He slipped off his clothes nervously, and in the oval mirror of the dresser admired the reflection of his slim white body against the dim wall. His mother's green beads lay on the dresser. He put them over his head, and shivered as they slid like a cool, lithe serpent over his shoulders and down his back. The feel of hands on flesh naked bodies, boy bodies, white, palpitant, arched feet beating, arms wreathing, flesh quivering, swimming, swimming, patterning white at dusk, gone again, his own body fusing, melting, wavering, sinking, the joy, the joy, the warm luxuriousness, the pain, the writhing. And then it happened. What was it? What had he done to himself? His body, what did it mean? He was frozen with fear. What should he do? He dared tell no one. He, oh Jesus! He sank to the floor like a stricken fawn and prayed hysterically, wildly, until realizing that he was naked and cold, he dressed and waited nervously for his mother's return. The fear held him, 
tightened on his throat like cold metal. But his mother, busy with supper preparations, noticed nothing strange. The next few days were frightful. The fear that haunted him now was of something unknown and untellable. That he was being punished he had no doubt. What he had done had brought upon him this thing, this disease. Yet how was he to know it was unjust? He hated himself, and vowed that never again should it occur. A week went by, and his mind was more at ease, though it was still, when he thought of it, a mad riot of imaginings and worryings and uncertainties. Perhaps it was still not too late. Perhaps the damage he had done himself was not irreparable. Perhaps whatever had happened would never happen again. How could it, if he behaved himself? And he knew that he would behave himself. The fear of the consequences, if he failed, was deterrent enough. And then one night the terror came back upon him like the gin from the bottle, a thousand times magnified. He was, in his sleep, half conscious of being seized by an irresistible desire to indulge in the pleasure he had forbidden himself. He must not, must not. But it was as if he had no control over himself. The thing was happening, and he was without power to stop it. He was yielding, and he must not. The fatal sweetness swept over him like incense-heavy air. Sweet, sweet, the delirium of it, the dulling richness of it, the swelling, pulsing joy of it. And then, in one spasmodic burning moment, it was over. He awoke with a stifled cry. For an instant he did not know what had happened. He sat upright in the dark, tense, rigid, terror screaming in his throat, which only his knuckles pressed into his mouth retained. It had happened again. It would happen again and again, until some terrible, unimaginable thing came to pass. And what, what should he, what could he do? The shame of it, the fear of it. He could not tell his parents, and yet maybe a doctor, maybe he could be cured. But even as the hope came to him, he knew it was vain, for he could never bring himself to tell the family doctor, or any doctor in the town. He dared not. All night he sat upright in his bed, chin propped in hands, finger ends pressing against his teeth, until the street light flickered out and the gray morning came thinly through the window. Despairing and afraid, he dropped to sleep. During the days that followed, he went through his routine of school and lessons and meals automatically, a dull worry constantly oppressing him. Quite by chance, he discovered in the sample copy of a cheap magazine which had been left at the door an advertisement which seemed to have bearing on his case. It frightened him, and yet at the same time consoled him, for it made certainty where there had been only doubt. It read, Young men, are you losing your manly vigor? Through bad habits formed in youth, are you becoming old before your time? Why be a physical wreck, right now, before it is too late, to the Crass Medical Bureau, Box 4N, Cincinnati, Ohio? Ask for booklet 7C, which will be sent you in a plain wrapper. When the little pamphlet came, he put it quickly into his pocket, and at the first opportunity went up to his own room and opened it. It all sounded fully as serious as he had feared. Much of it he could not understand, but it was easy enough to see that he had been guilty of an unpardonable sin towards his own body. 
The secret vice was responsible, he learned to his horror, for insanity, feeble-mindedness, loss of memory, and all sorts of diseases he had never heard of, but which, the booklet said, were wasting and devastating in their insidious and debilitating effects. He read the cheaply printed pages as a criminal might read his bill of charges, eagerly, fearfully, and when the last accusing sentence was done, he realized that his only hope on earth lay in rejuvo elixir. It could be procured at two dollars per bottle from the Crafts Bureau, which was most highly recommended by the Chemico Health Society, also of Cincinnati. He had, it happened, four dollars saved from his weekly allowance of fifty cents that he planned to put into the bank soon, but still he thought there were excuses he might make. He could plead the necessity of buying a birthday present for his mother. Something. Something. End of Part 1, Chapter 2